Well, if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 16. Um, We are finishing up the book of Romans today. What's taken us, although we took a pause in the middle of it, we've spent all together about six months working through this book of the Bible. Uh, And to give you a little bit of a heads up where we're going, uh, next week begins the Christmas season for us. We do a season every year we like to call Emmanuel, God with us, in which we invite people from the congregation to share uh, testimony stories of how God has been faithful to them. And so I'm really excited about that again this year. Um, We will also be doing a Christmas Eve service as we've done in the past, so I'll have those details out to you. But the other thing I wanted to get on your calendar is uh, we've decided not to have a service on the 27th, so with, uh, with uh, what has been busy schedules and complexities of services and family traveling situations, we thought it might be nice for you to be able to spend that Sunday at home with family or with friends. Um, and so uh, go ahead and mark your calendars. We'll be off that Sunday immediately following Christmas, and then, of course, back the, the next Sunday in January together. So I'll have that all in an email so you'll have clarity on it as well but wanted to give you a heads up. So uh, today, finishing up the book of Romans, uh, if you were here last week, we noticed how Paul begins this transition into personal matters. So Romans 15, by its end, is really Paul describing this itinerary, his plans about where he's going. This week, we continue to get that really personal image of Paul at work as he begins to take time and greet the community of believers that he's worked with, that he knows they're in Rome, and he anticipates seeing again. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read the entire of chapter 16, mostly a list of difficult to pronounce Greek names, so you will bear with me as I work through them. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of mine and of myself as well. Greet Prissa, which is probably a shortened version of Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila, My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Read also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epatineus, who was first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are also well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplitius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stasis. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus. Greet Philogon. Greet Hermes. Greet Patrobus. Greet Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the church of Christ's greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Teratus, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. This is probably Paul's scribe who's dictating the letter from him. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and your brother, Corantus, greets you. Now in him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans chapter 16. Um, As you probably noticed, most of what that chapter is, is a long list of names and greetings. In the ancient world, it was common when you wrote a letter to someone, kind of the opposite. If you've ever written a letter, often we will say, dear so-and-so, and at the end, sincerely, chase. But in the ancient world, they would flip that. At the beginning, they would introduce themselves, and at the end of the letter, they would often list out and greet the people the letter was addressed to. This list of names also seems to represent, partially at least, leaders who are probably leading house churches within Rome. You notice several times it repeats phrases, like when Paul greets Priscilla and Aquila. He adds in verse 5, greet also the church in their house. Probably what you get, at least partially in this list of names, are the leaders of those churches that Paul is greeting the believers within, these house churches scattered across Rome. Some historians have estimated that the five churches that are mentioned in this list, probably averaging somewhere around 20 or so people meeting in a home based on the average size of those homes in Rome, that the church Paul was writing to in that day in Rome was probably around 100 believers, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. That might be a conservative estimate, but it gives you an idea that what Paul is dealing with when he writes to these believers in Rome is by no means mega. A hundred believers scattered across a few houses. There are a lot of questions about the population of Rome during this time. There's disputes about how to read the censuses that were taken, who they included, who they didn't. But some historians believe that the population in the first century of Rome was somewhere around one million people. So the metro Springfield area, if you take all of the communities around Springfield, is about 450,000 people. What we're talking about is a church of around a hundred people scattered across house churches in an urban setting roughly twice the size of the metro area of Springfield. Hopefully that gives you a little context for this church at Rome that Paul is writing to. Those numbers could be slightly off, but the point is certainly true that this community of believers is a small, small fraction of those living in Rome. For some reason, I've found that image really compelling this week. When we hear of things like the great city of Rome, and the great Apostle Paul writing his letter, spreading Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. We think of these massive historical events, the scale of history in the midst, epic, ancient history. And in fact, the work this little church and this single man Paul would do would become a trajectory, a reflection point of history itself. But what's both remarkable and much simpler is the reality of this church in Rome, a humble group of people scattered across a few houses in this massive urban metropolis. And at the center of that is this humble list of names, 
a small group of people that would actually change the world. But no one around them would have thought of them that way, the way we do reading back 2,000 years later into their history. This little group of people getting together to follow this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, in the midst of the opulence and power of Rome, well, it wasn't a show that many people were signing up to go see. There was no spectacle to their worship, no celebrity influence for these names mentioned. Paul and his co-workers, for all of the grandeur and weight that we give them as believers, were pretty common, unrecognized people in the midst of Roman power and society. It's also worth pointing out the prominent place of women in this list. Nearly half of the names that Paul lists in greeting the believers and leaders in Rome are women, including Phoebe, which is the very first one in the chapter, who Paul has tasked with carrying the letter of the book of Romans to the church at Rome. Most historians believe that she was probably already heading there on some sort of a business assignment. Paul mentions that she was a patron of him, that she had helped fund his ministry, And now, as she was probably on her way to Rome, Paul tasks her with carrying this letter. Um, Also in the ancient world, what's missed on us is the letter carrier was usually the person who would stand before a group of people and read the letter. They were the one who had seen it, marked and given to them by the person who had written it, and so they bore in them the authority of that person who had handed them the letter, and it was their responsibility to give the first public reading of the letter to ensure its accuracy and authenticity. So it's interesting to point out that probably the first person to publicly read Romans, like we've done over the last six months, would have been this woman on a business trip to Rome. The list is actually pretty far-reaching. Single men and single women, married couples, some who are described as being old, some who are described as being young, some that are Jews by lineage, most Gentiles. There's one woman, in fact, that Paul says was like a mother to him. There are others like Timothy, a pupil to him. This wide-ranging list of names that Paul greets and thanks at work in the Church of Rome. Paul knows them all by name, but he also knows for each one of them a kind of reputation or faithfulness in serving that he calls out alongside that name. Those who were the first to be saved, those who had been faithful, those who had reputations amongst the apostles, those who had been like a mother to him. They are not just a list of names that he's trying to give some honor to, to leverage credibility for himself. This is a mark of gratitude and recognition for who they are. Um, Part of what's amazing to me about this chapter, again, one of those sections that if you stumble your way through the names like I often do, you probably read through pretty quickly. But what's amazing is that this is actually here, that it's still here in the book of Romans, that no one at some point decided to edit it out, that no later copyist could maybe save some room on a scroll and get back to more important things and just lop off this list of names, by the way, most of us having no idea who any of them are. How irrelevant is things like Triophena and Urbanus and Nerus and his sister, who doesn't even get a name? Why in the world do we need these names listed alongside those great chapters where Paul clarifies the Christian gospel, righteousness and faithfulness, And then these, names lost to history. Whoever they are, they don't seem to contribute much to the way you're thinking about your life in 2020 or the challenges of growing and sanctification in your own life. But nonetheless, here they are, preserved through history. A testament not only to who these individuals were, but an image of who that church was. Paul knew these people individually. 
He knew that he did not do his work alone, but in the context of these named individuals. There are some through the years who come to think that the church is primarily about me, about what I get from it, what value it provides my life, which way I like it and which way I don't. But the image here is of this diverse community together, working together, believing in things to come, possibilities within the church. Like Paul does, we are reminded by this list of names to give thanks. It is, after all, our week of thanksgiving and how fitting it is that we find Paul giving thanks for each of these individuals by name. To give thanks to named people that God has placed in the midst of his life. You notice that Paul does not give thanks for their remarkable talent or for their charming good looks or the influence Over and over, the thanks that he gives is their faithfulness, their relationship to him, their encouragement to him. At the center of this church is not a new building campaign that they've shared in. It's not some program that they've launched or some brand they've created within the community. As fitting and as right as those things may be, at the heart of what Paul is most grateful for is the knowledge he has of them as people that he is known to them, and they are known to him. What Paul is thankful for are individuals, named individuals. Now, the flip side of this is Paul recognizes that any time a group of people get together, there is constantly a risk of tearing that gratitude apart through division. Isn't it interesting that after this long list of gratitude that Paul gives for these individuals, he turns immediately to the risk in front of them? Verse 17, they must beware of those who creep in to create division. That this gratitude we have for one another is quite often and quite frequently robbed from us by division between us. These do not serve the Lord, those who come in to create this division, but Paul says they serve their own appetite. It's this image of consumerism. What's in it for me, what I get out of it, the way I like things done. This is the risk of trying to create unity in the church, this temptation for all of us to expect that unity to be my way, to be like I want it, and for everyone to do exactly what I would have them do. Wouldn't it be great if you could design a church and just craft all the people that you would like to have around in that church to make it work for you as best as possible? For Paul, he says people are doing this, serving their own appetites. They come in and start dividing people up, and always what is lost is a sense of gratitude for one another. My appetite is constantly at risk of adding to this division, and I think that's a thought you should be willing to entertain even this Thanksgiving, as we so often celebrate it, with big appetites. I am constantly thinking about what I want and what I need and how I would have it. And that interest, that self-interest, that appetite, that growling of my stomach has a tendency to create divisions that cost me gratitude. That appetite can often be for good things, good programs, good changes that maybe the church needs. But what I want quickly becomes more important to me than what is actually here, these actual people. The most challenging part of community is not planning lunches or picking out small group material. The real challenge of community is always the genuine acceptance and gratitude that we hold on to for one another. When things are frustrated, 
when our appetite calls for something else, how do we keep ourselves holding on to the gratitude, not just of an abstract community, but actual named people? Uh, Often, whenever I talk about community, I force a Dietrich Bonhoeffer Life Together quote on you, so it would only be fitting that I include one in this sermon as well. Dan's not here to give me a hard time, which he always does when I do this. Uh, Bonhoeffer wrote this about this community. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we must participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all fellowship is in Christ Jesus alone, the more sincerely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope and be grateful for it. In other words, what we have as a church is not something we create. It's not something we envision, that we dream up, that we go searching for, perfect for me and my needs. What Christian community is, is a realization that God has placed these people in my life. By his sovereignty, by his choice, opened up this door of possibility before me, fellowship. Not an abstract program, but people. Some of us out today, some of us sitting here today, but you know them, you see them, you shake hands with them, you talk to them. It's not an abstract thing, what this church is. It's people with names and stories and their own following of Christ, which brings us together to this place. So Paul calls these believers to greet one another with a holy kiss. You're so lucky that there's a law requiring you to wear masks today because I had the perfect application for how we could wrap this service up, being faithful to the text, the applications right here. Um, It was actually pretty common in the ancient world, as it is in some parts of the world today, to greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. That was very common, particularly within Jewish culture, for for you to greet somebody that you had a relationship like that. That's what Paul's talking about here. It it is a warm affection of relationship shown. Um, The early church father, Tertullian, called it a kiss of peace. In other words, it's a mark of greeting which welcomes the individual into relationship into unity. You maybe catch why it is so unbelievable that Judas would choose this as the sign by which he would betray Christ, a kiss on the cheek, for it is intended to be the sign by which we welcome one another into relationship known. Now, in our culture, we don't kiss each other when we're greeting. Uh, Instead, what we do is a long spectrum of formalities by which we can introduce ourselves and greet someone. Uh, These days, it's very awkward uh, elbow bumps I'm not really into, uh, or we just stare at each other through masks from across the room. Uh, the hardest part of COVID, if I can just say, is normally I see facial expressions, but when I preach now, I just see eyes like animals in the night staring back at me. Uh, we have ways that in the past we greeted one another, hugs and handshakes, but that list of ways in which we greet has a spectrum of formality to it. We're sort of obliged to say, hello, how are you doing? crazy weather this weekend, you watch the Chiefs game today, we know the ways we create small talk. What Paul is calling for here is a genuineness to our greeting, kind and personal words perhaps, maybe the investment of time, which we could spend in better or more effective places elsewhere, but we give instead as a gift to another. Maybe it is thoughtfulness, spending time outside of the conversation itself, that person coming to mind, not just because you like them or want something from them, but because you routinely turn your thoughts and attention and gratitude towards all of these people. 
Maybe it's emotional participation, as emotional stability is short for all of us, a willingness to invest your own emotions into somebody else's pain or loss, to bear that burden with them. This greeting is not just a handshake in the lobby on Sunday morning. This holy kiss, this kiss of peace that Paul calls for, is a willingness to greet one another in sincerity, in acceptance, in unity, in full knowledge of who that person is. You know when you're playing the formalities and when it's a genuine acceptance of a person and appreciation for the opportunity to see them. I would entertain to you today that God knows the difference too when your words are a formality and when they are a genuine gratitude for God having gifted that person into your life. The final point is this. The reason Paul thinks that a community of people can risk this, abandoning their own appetites, A willingness to embrace one another, not just because what you do for me is good, but because God has placed you here with all of the complexities that you and I both bring to that relationship. Paul says the reason that you can do this warm reception is that it is God who will soon crush Satan. And as he concludes in that great doxology, it is God who will strengthen you. It is God who has revealed the mysteries of his coming kingdom to the nations. This is, after all, one of the great and concluding themes of Romans. God is sovereign. God is at work. God is building his church, his people, his community. He is faithful to see this through within us, demonstrating his faithfulness, his righteousness. The great theme of the book of Romans is that we can bear sacrifice and risk and vulnerabilities that no one else in this world can afford because we know what we possess by his faithfulness. God does not leave us with a long list of things to go about doing. If you do them well, then community will flourish in your midst. Do this, add this program, here's the technique. If you carry it out, people will like you and you will all get along. No, Paul says instead, we greet one another, we sacrifice our own appetite. We give of our time and our sincerity in true gratitude, having first been grateful what Christ has done in us and freeing us into a kind of gratitude for one another, impossible without having first received from Christ. In many ways, if I could give it to you this way, I think the ultimate and final word of the book of Romans is one of gratitude, one of awe one of recognizing what God is at work doing and humbly saying, I will live as a willing sacrifice, sacrificing myself, entrusting myself into these ways of God and believing by faith that he is capable of doing all that he has promised within us as individuals, but within us as a people, named individuals within a community. So I'll close with this, and we'll begin to worship together. This week of Thanksgiving, could I ask you to turn some of your attention this weekend, popping those leftovers in the microwave, as so many of us are doing, and turn your attention towards the people that God has placed around you. Start with this church, but it is surely more than just that. Neighborhoods, family, but these people too. Not just Bent Oak Church, quite frankly, I couldn't care less what the name of this church was, But these people, these individuals, greeting them in gratitude, with thankfulness that God has
has put us together by his sovereignty through his faithfulness for his purpose. Not always clean, sometimes messy and complex, and I recognize not always fulfilling the way that you would have it, but by his sovereignty, still believing he is at work in the midst of it. As Paul would say, I am grateful for each of you. My prayer as your pastor is that you would discover a gratefulness for one another as well. Let's close in prayer. We'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful first to you. We recognize this morning that you And this relationship, undeserved but offered by grace and mercy, is what teaches us what true gratitude is. God, we stand before you this morning knowing that we have nothing to offer you, nothing that you need from us, nothing by which we could barter or gain our own way. But everything we have is by your grace and by your mercy. As you've shown us so many times through this book of Romans, These words of righteousness alone, your faithfulness and righteousness to us. God, we've been learning and understanding what it is to be grateful to you, to trust and believe that you are at work within us, that you are faithful to fulfill your promises to your people, which you have made us a part of. We've seen it in this book through the way that you walked with Israel the way that you worked in unexpected ways through unexpected people to bring about your promises. We've seen it in Paul's faithfulness and steadfastness, his boldness. How he proclaimed no shame in your gospel, but that you are the beginning and the end of who we are as a people by your grace and mercy. We've been challenged to live that out, to sacrifice our own ways, to put our hope and faith in you. And we close this book this morning like Paul does by recognizing this incredible gift we have of the people around us. People you use to encourage us, to speak your wisdom into our hearts. People that rub us the wrong way and give us opportunities for all of those fruit of the Spirit to be practiced. God, for those who are there for us when we need them. And God, just for those that are here. People souls, names, that by your sovereignty for reasons we might not ever know are here with us, together with us. God, empty us of our own appetite. Quiet that growling of our stomachs for our own way. And open our eyes by your spirit to the gift that you give us. Teach us like Paul to be grateful for all of it, for your grace, for your mercy, for your sovereign leading for the experiences and the curves and the twists that you have in this path and for those who walk with us on it, that by all things we are learning to follow you in a better way so that we might conclude like those final words of Romans, to you be the glory, to you be the honor, to you be all of our worship and all of our gratitude. It's in your name we pray.